Hello, I'm Christopher Kazan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, is there hope in the atom? We live in an energy crisis, with environmental catastrophe and war questioning our reliance on fossil fuels. Nuclear power was once the great green hope, but decades of concerns about accidents and radioactive waste have turned much of Europe off. But were those concerns overblown, and have they blinded us to a vital source of clean energy? In their new film, Atomic Hope, filmmakers Frankie Fenton and Catherine Kennedy have collaborated with Finnish scientist Ida Reushelma to explore the environmentalist pro-nuclear movement. At Ireland's Edge and Dingle, they spoke with Emmy award-winning filmmaker and Ireland's Edge founder, Nuala O'Connor. I'd like to welcome Ida Ruizhalma. Ida is a cell biologist, Swedish-Finnish or Finnish-Swedish. Frankie Fenton and his partner Catherine Kennedy work together as documentary makers, producers and directors and God knows what else. And um, this, I like to think of this as a discussion about a discussion. Very meta, very on trend. Um, in the sense that the topic is nuclear power, and the title of your film, Frankie, is Atomic Hope, yeah. which I saw last June, I think, or July, and watched with some resistance, I have to say, to the whole idea of it, but by the end of it was completely of a different disposition, let's say. Um, and of all of the words that one could put with atomic, one thinks bomb, explosion, warfare, atomic age but not hope. So I'm going to start with you and ask you why you called it Atomic Hope. Yeah. It's actually Catherine came up with it. Well, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> nice way I don't to know why I assume Frankie came up with it. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm a producer, so you're constantly trying to figure out how to, I suppose, market your film as well. And giving it, I think originally we had it as the good reactor, which was um, to denote the thorium molten salt reactors, which is what the original film was about. Um, but the, the film had evolved and over 10 years became about the movement, the pro-nuclear movement that Ida is a part of. And what we really got from the, the activists that we were filming was just this great sense of hope from them. And then Atomic Hope just kind of sounded dynamic. Because it certainly is, it, you know, draws the attention immediately. Yeah. Now the subtitle is Inside the Pro-Nuclear Movement. Correct. And you are inside the pro-nuclear <laughs> yes. movement, and you feature in that film. Yes. So, um, just just talk me through your st story, Ida, because, like I imagine, everybody, almost everybody, um, the spectre of you know uh, the the bomb, the atomic bomb of 1945. Subsequent Three Mile Island, Windscale, Sellafield, Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, they are the spectres. So, what we know of nuclear power, what we know of it, we, that's what we know. But we know nothing about it, actually. Like, I mean, because that's enough, we think, to know about it. It's dangerous, it's terrifying. Thanks very much, no thanks. So, and I mean, I'm old enough to have gone to Carnesore a couple of times, it's fully signed up member of the anti-nuclear movement, had my Atom Shaft 9 tanker badge. You know, do you still have it? Yeah, I do. But do you? Yeah. Okay. And um, so, but I don't think I'll be taking it out again, maybe. Oh. It'll quite the same, well. you know, doctrinaire aplomb as uh, I had uh, at that age. But just, you would have come from that. You're, you're from Finland. 
um, Chernobyl, for example, the, the winds blew north after yes. that explosion. Um, you're about 600 miles from there. Um, tell me how you came to be inside the pro-nuclear movement. Yeah, that's definitely not a place I expected to find myself ever because the starting point was that nuclear is something really dangerous, really... Uh, there are so many cues from everywhere in our culture and families and friends, whenever it's mentioned or talked about, that it's, it tells you, it rings the alarm bells right away. It's something that we should be really cautious with. It's simply sensible to be really careful and be aware that it has extraordinary risk. This was, this was my starting point. And uh, it wasn't really either something that I was interested in, because I'm a biologist and I'm interested in life and natural ecosystems. At the point when I had my own children and they were small and I was getting more and more worried about climate change, it felt somehow more urgent because suddenly I'm thinking about how will the world look like when they grow up and their children grow up. And then I realized that this thing with climate change is actually a lot about energy. Most of our emissions come from energy and it's actually really important to our societies because of the things like hospitals and public transport lighting in schools and warmth, everything runs on energy. So I was, I was sort of reluctantly looking into it and I was blown away by the realization that I had thought that I knew already enough to say we should never use it because surely everybody knew this. This is simply how it is. And then I realized also that, wait, I'm a scientist and we don't just know things. Okay, let's, let's look at this. And it was really difficult to make sense of the discussion at first because there are so many different viewpoints that you see in media and in discussions and a lot of passionate people trying to say that we can do things one way or the other way and you definitely don't need nuclear or you absolutely need nuclear. So I realized that I have to look into it and I tried to use my scientist background instead of this, this uh, starting point of, of saying no thanks and going to the most reliable sources I could find, IPCC and International Energy uh, um, Agency and things like this, where there are really comprehensive reviews of it. And I was, I really was taken aback by the fact that they were all saying that we really need nuclear power. We need to decarbonize our societies. We need loads and loads and loads of low carbon energy and that actually even in all the scenarios that we have, uh, we're already, IPCC, for instance, is, is relying on methodologies that don't even exist yet, and a huge increase in nuclear power. So I had to go back and think about, okay, so why had I said no, and why were these places saying that we really need it? And during this, this it, was a, it was a journey, because it wasn't like I stopped fearing nuclear power overnight, but I realized that fear isn't enough. I actually have to inform myself beyond that, and over the years that I was reading more and more about it, I realized that actually nuclear power was already providing us with the majority of Europe's car low carbon energy, for instance. And that this is where the, I really love the, the term hope, because this is where the hope came in as well, because I needed to know for my children's sake that we actually have methods at our disposal that we can do something about this. And I realized that here are lots of experts saying that, yes, this is one of the important tools. We have it, we can use it, we can use it a lot more. We have other sources, like the largest one is hydropower. That's the world's largest low carbon energy source. But 
not, uh, in, even in the European Union, that's actually second to nuclear power. And we can't just make more hydropower opportunities appear. That's how much water you have falling from high places. You can take care of those. That is not without everything has its drawbacks as well. But uh, yeah, I realized that actually we have another form that we can use a lot more and that we can make huge, really long, generation-long contributions to that my children and their children can actually have reliable um, Frankie, you, you then come into this story. Um, you, you started out to, do, to make a documentary looking at thormium. Yeah. And you realised that nobody was going to be interested. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it was really hard. I say? No, yeah. totally. I mean, originally I came from an anthropology, sociology like background and then kind of did film in college and then, um, you know, I worked in post-production in London on television shows that I didn't really like at the time. Um, they were like, you know, Britain's Got Talent and X Factor, that kind of thing. And I really was kind of questioning my life every single day, kind of going, why am I doing this, you know? And I'd call around to my sister's house and she's watching X Factor and I'd go, I oh, turn it off. And she's like, well, just get into it. Stop being so cynical. And I was like, no, it's destroying the world. So I, what I wanted to do was to make a big film about something like food or pharmaceuticals or something that would have an impact. And uh, someone, my, my good friend Des, handed me an article in Wired magazine in 2009. It's a long time ago. And in it, it basically said about this thing called thorium, which you, which you mentioned, which is using thorium instead of uranium in these uh, uh, nuclear reactors, which we have stopped using. We, we kind of used them experimentally kind of in the 60s and then just stopped. And I was like, this sounds really interesting. This seemed to answer all the problems that we had with uh, nuclear power, like proliferation, safety, waste. And some of those things were kind of true and some of them weren't. But I kind of got the bug that perhaps if this seemed to answer a lot of the problems that we have, then like Edith says, there's hope. There's kind of, you know, some more people need to know about this. So I decided to try and make a film, but no one would give me money because it's like, why would you make a, a pro new? I mean, we've already decided it's over. It's, you know, it's, yeah. we, you know. This is the problem with this topic, isn't mm. it? This, this subject. Yeah. So you're involved in, you know, coming to terms with your own feelings about nuclear power and then getting involved in a pro-nuclear campaign, which itself is, uh, is difficult. It's difficult to get airtime for this. It's difficult to get into the spaces where the climate change people are or where the, even the industry is, and that's another story, the actual nuclear industry itself. Um, but then you're making a film about a subject that is finding it difficult to be talked about. So you're both, you know, so you, you took forever to make this well, film. Well, yeah, I, did. I mean, for... for Okay, so what happened then was I, I did a Kickstarter appeal and um, that actually gained traction because the people who kind of knew what the hell I was talking about were outliers and weirdos and nerds all out on the internet who in 2012 were like, yeah, that guy, that's what we need to make a film about this thing. So I, I earned enough money to, you know, now in retrospect, having made documentaries, it was way too little money. But it ended up being development money. I tried to make, I basically made a documentary called The Good Reactor about this thing called thorium. And it was fine. It was like basically physicists, you know, 
like, for want of a better term, you know, pale, male, stale guys in front of bookcases, you know, explaining in convoluted and, you know, esoteric terms about why these particular reactors are different. And, of course, that wasn't very interesting to a very broad and kind of... And, you know, this subject matter is something that needs to be fed to... Well, you know, the grannies on my road need to understand what the hell they're talking about, as well as my kids and that, you know. So, so where were you coming from yourself in the terms of your attitude to nuclear power? Are you, Catherine, were you involved in the Thorium documentary? Uh, Frankie showed that to me um, back in 2012 or 13, and we decided that it wasn't going to go anywhere because it, it just, well, it was shaped in a way that was very kind of, um, like you say, long-winded and, and, and everything. But then we went and made another film together called It's Not Yet Dark about a, a filmmaker called Simon Fitzmaurice who wrote and directed a film through Eye Gaze Technology. And that was about communicating sort of a science or, or a perspective by humanising a subject. And we took what we learned from that <coughs> with Simon because there was an awful lot we had to consider in that in terms of people's own perceptions of what Simon's choices should have been and how he should live his life and you know, why, why would he make a film through eye gaze technology and, and all this sort of stuff that we had to humanise for that film. So then we looked at the subject of nuclear energy, which was, like, like yourself, I strongly identified as an anti-nuclear person. And it, it was really kind of interesting to me to realise that my opinion had actually become something that I identified as and which then became something that, when I questioned it, it sort of threw a lot of stuff out. And I thought, this really needs to be challenged in a public way, you know, because everybody is so staunchly anti-nuclear. So we decided to look at the people that we were filming and that Frankie was filming and kind of see what they were saying. And when we just focused on them and their messages and the science kind of came through their messages of hope, I suppose, yeah, it became more that. like science communication through people, I suppose. Is that, does that sound... Yeah, yeah no, like, that's, that, that's yeah. exactly... Uh, it, it seems like very challenging work. Um, both as in terms of making the film, but also the work itself, that it, it, is, it is so difficult to actually um, get a hearing. I, I, I'd recommend any of you that can see the film to watch it, because um, it is clearly so difficult to be accepted in the places. There are some heart-rending scenes where you know, you're trying to get a platform just to have the discussion. What, what, is, what is really depressing about this film is that the inability of people with fixed ideas to actually even consider, not that they would change their minds even, but that they would even allow the discussion at all to take place. That, that's almost an element of that, because I think... Like, like, it is about humanising. The, the, like for me, it was, okay, let's point the camera at people who are able to science communicate, who are able to communicate the science properly. And uh, these were the people who were actual environmentalists um, and who were, who were coming from a place of, you know, wanting to preserve the biosphere, people who really cared about children and who cared about, uh, you know, the decisions that we're going to make into the future and who actually had a kind of, you know, a message of hope. But, um, you know, we are told like every day, that we are living in a divided world and it's getting more and more divided. And I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of BS. Like I, like, I think there's way more that we agree on than is actually, than we disagree on. Yeah. And, you know, I think starting from that point of view yeah. is the key to all of this, like all of our issues. Yeah. This, uh, the, how it's about communication, because 
for me, I have this scientist background and I'm very comfortable writing texts and looking at research papers and stuff like this. But then when I realized that, you know, for me too, the opening to the discussion was, it was crucial that I had people who I trusted who actually gave me the, the curiosity to even start looking like, hey, actually, it might not be that black and white. There might be some, you know, really good ways of handling nuclear waste, for instance. And then I realized that, okay, so all this data that I started looking at, it was because I was ready, I was interested, I was open at looking at it. But to be able to get to that point, it's not enough that I, you know, send people lots of links or say this data says this, but that you actually need to have a uh, human being, a person who you realize, like, why is this person here? Why is this important? Why should I listen? And that's when I had to sort of push myself from my comfort zone, thinking that, okay, so when are my kids grow up and look at me in the eye and say, why is the world like this? Why didn't you do anything? That I can say, I, I did try something, and that I actually go and have these discussions. And it's very scary at first, because I felt the only narrative I've heard was the one which was, which was very loud anti-nuclear, very loud fear message. And it's horrible to tell someone, don't be afraid, it doesn't work. They still have their fear, so it's, what do I say? But what really surprised me was that my idea about how divided it is was also not quite accurate, actually. I realized that there are very loud voices against it, but when I actually went to places like UN climate meeting and talked to people outside meetings and demonstrations and on the streets, and um, that most people were actually not very strongly for or against. They had not really thought about it a lot, and most of them were actually curious and actually they said, like, oh, wow, uh, I didn't know that. Well, really, maybe I'll look into that. So you think fear is not the driver, in fact? I think that there's lots of fear, but I think that it's the natural first cautious, uh, you know, starting point. And that it's not necessarily for all of us something that's, that's very hardwired into our identity. That there's a lot of people who have just assumed that this must be it, but that they're actually open to listening if you put yourself out there and say that, please consider this, it's, it's, it's important, so, so it's not that you can tell somebody this is it and just accept the facts as I tell you, but just to say there's lots of information on it, actually a lot of it is not easy to find, please be open at looking at it. That brings me on to um, the, uh, the, what's not known, not just about the, the science, but about the actual distribution of nuclear power in the world. So. This, as, I, as I understand, um, Russia, China, India are all busily still, uh, and I think South Korea, still busily building nuclear generators. Um, and in fact, if you want to order a nuclear generator, they're the places to go. Whereas the, um, the Americans and the Germans particularly are decommissioning as fast as the others are building. So it's, a, it's an interesting and probably little surveyed world, even for just the general reading public. Is that true? So that's kind of, like, for, from my perspective, was, okay, we, we had this fear thing and kind of the lack of knowledge. And, like, for me, it was this, uh, like, did a million people die in Chernobyl or 140? And you kind of go through all these different phases. And then you realize then that, okay, so what is happening in the world? And you look at your pie and you see that 83% of the world's fossil fuel is fossil fuel run. And you see that that has gone nowhere, like for the last 20, 20 30 years. It's, it's stayed like that, and it is continuing to stay like that. So 
in that little segment is nuclear and renewables, say. And we have to replace this whole chunk, right? So we have, so, so what's happened with nuclear power and what has been happening has been, we have been uh, uh, decommissioning them at a rate of, um, where we have nuclear power plants that aren't meant to be closed down for another, say, 20, 30, 40 years time. So these are early closures. And that was the first protocol. So we even have the likes of Greta Thunberg talking two weeks ago saying, perhaps we should stop closing them early, number one, which is what Germany has been doing. But interestingly, the decision in Germany, which dates from 2011, is Fukushima-related. So, so literally within yeah. months of Fukushima. So like, I mean, a year yeah. before Fukushima happened, I went to Germany and just happened to be there with pals and I had a little camcorder and one of uh, the housemates said, do you want to come outside? We're going for, for there's, a, there's a big um, uh, protest on outside. And I was like, oh yeah, let's go. And there was like just tens of thousands of people on the streets. I was like, what, what's going on? And it was an anti-nuclear uh, protest. It was 250,000 people who were just like, close it down, close it down. I was like, wow, people are really... And this is at the same time where I was kind of starting to learn about thorium and all that kind of stuff. I was like, do they know about thorium? Excuse me, excuse me. But uh, no one would listen to me. But, um, the, 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 but the thing is, is that, um, so once Fukushima happened, I mean, that was like, of course, bloody close them. I mean, like, now will you listen to us? So it was already happening in Germany. It was such a, you know, and I think you, what, when, we, when we think about these, these situations about Germany closing, Germany has been trying to show the world how to do things. And to be fair to Germany, Germany said, if we can get rid of nuclear power and run this whole shebang on renewables, then we should do it, and we should show the world how to do it. And yeah, they gave it the best shot ever, and they're still trying to do it, but it's failed. I mean, they're burning more coal now than they've ever burnt, right? So there's an element of we have to just take a step back and stop pointing fingers because everyone is in, who's talking about this game is coming at it from a place of love. They're doing it in the place of trying to make the world a better place, and we're finding out in real time methods that are working and methods that aren't. And uh, what I think is really interesting about Germany is that, as you said, it was so many people were against it, so strongly against it. There was lots of fear, uh, and uh, the most amazing thing is that now that that different things have come up, more climate change is talked about more. The war has changed completely the, the realization of energy security actually being at risk. Uh, all of these uh, points have led to the fact that the German population that was so against it back then uh, that you would have thought that this will never, never uh, come up as something positive in Germany again. Now, actually, there's been lots of polls in the last year, last two years. Most of Germans are in favor of continued use uh, of nuclear power. I, I but they only have three left. generators left. Yeah, they, out of seventeen from twenty eleven. Yeah, exactly. They have they have they have ramped up in incredibly their renewables uh, and end up only replacing nuclear and then having to add some coal. So it's it's, it's like coal is replacing. We, this fight is, is not, against fossil fuels. It's, it's, it's lignite. So it's brown coal, which yeah. is yeah. the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst. And in the film, we go out. Yeah, you might remember, yeah, we go out yeah, to the lignite mines near the Hambach Forest where they're just churning up these like ancient forests. Yeah, ancient forests and turning it into and this dystopian black uh, 
a landscape, a monstrous it, machine. So, it's, it's incredible. So there's a lot of kind of things that are, you know, that we can look at in the world today and panic and go, oh my God, how are we going to get ourselves out of this? And then, you know, if you're in a burning house and someone's screaming like, panic, panic, and the house is on fire, or you've got someone going, okay, everybody, stand up, you know, there's a door here, you know, I want to listen to that person. I want, you know, and there's people who are anti-nuclear have really good reasons for being anti-nuclear, and that's fine, but... You know, we also have people who are pro-nuclear who, who think that we have got real solutions and pathways out of... Because in, literally in 28 years' time, we're going to have 10 billion people on the planet. And in that time, the current energy that we're using is going to double or triple. And some people say quadruple, but, like, you know, but at least double the amount of energy that we're using. And so even getting what we have today, like sorted out is a big mission but like kind of looking into the future it's increasing but at the same time there are many people in the world today who really feel that there is really good ways of of dealing with this with technology and like so we should be putting real good massive amounts of money into renewables and looking at there is very i mean currently you can't do it just the re renewables that's the point and I don't think any of the pro-nuclear people who I've interviewed are anti-nuclear or anti-renewable, except perhaps Michael Schellenberger, um, who calls them an abomination and a waste of resources and, and that. And there is people who, who say that kind of thing. But right now, I think we need everything. And what I think is really important uh, about that is also that you said that we will be 10 billion people and we will need more, more energy. And lots of people tell me in Europe, like, actually, we should use less, we should consume less. And I com completely agree that whatever we can consume less is great if we are ready to make changes that actually use less resources, use less energy, that is great. Unfortunately, a lot of things in our uh, societies already um, that are really polluting or really resource heavy um, can be solved if you use more clean electricity, things like making steel or recycling more resources, then you need more clean electricity. So it's not so easy just to say no, it's, it's, reduce. It's very, very complex. But can I just go back a little bit? Um, because one of the most moving sections in the film is where you go to Chernobyl yes. with Professor... Jim Smith. Jim yeah. Smith, who I heard uh, interviewed actually at the time the film was shown in the Dublin Documentary Festival, who said that he has been a closet pro-nuclear activist <laughs> for many yeah. years, but is feeling now that he can come out of the closet. But... Um, you're filmed in Chernobyl, but were the two of you in Chernobyl as well? I was. I yeah. was at home with the very Because I'm very interested in that, because you, in a sense, went to the heart of darkness like there, and you spent a whole day in the exclusion zone, and you looked like you were just wearing a your week. ordinary clothes. And um, so just tell us a bit about that and the, and the radiation levels and what you experienced yeah. and all of that. It's interesting. Um, you know. No, it was... It was completely incredible experience actually to be able to go there. Uh, I spent uh, two days in the exclusion zone and, and not only that, but I actually got to go there with the researchers who have been studying the place since uh, a few years after the accident started making surveys and looking at nature and looking at the kind of the fate of radioactive uh, uh, elements in, the, in nature. And uh, what is really striking is the fact that as soon as people left the zone, 
nature started coming back. So immediately after the accident, you, would, you had a couple of kilometers uh, where trees died and rats died and things like this, and you had... Uh, from radiation. From radiation, yeah, exactly. From, from the fallout just next to the power plant. And you had uh, um, iodine, this short-lived uh, uh, radioactive element, which was, uh, you know, it goes into plants and it goes into milk and stuff like this, which actually they didn't tell people don't eat these things, which led to their... their probably will be like 100 or 200 deaths by their end of their lifetime because of this. But then after that, after the first years passed, the plants started growing again, the animals came back, and because humans left, it became a haven for wildlife. I was thinking that at least at the heart of Chernobyl power plant, where at the, at the cooling ponds and at the red forest, which is called red forest because the pine forest died and turned red uh, from the initial uh, shock of the, the radiation. And uh, so at least there you will see this dystopian land that I had been always imagining that if there is an accident, this is what it is. It will destroy life and there will be lifeless expanses where you can't visit because it's dangerous. So I was wearing uh, uh, a Geiger counter or dosimeter all the time to show the levels of radiation and also how much I accumulated. And uh, the most amazing thing is that that place looked like a place just like any other. And there are lots of people working in the zone. There are, are tens or hundreds of people working. There are lots of really friendly stray dogs that are living everywhere around the villages where the people, workers live. And uh, during the whole time that I spent there, I spent two days there, I went to the cooling ponds, I, well, I went to the actual power plant 50 meters away from the reactor, and uh, during that whole time there, I accumulated less radiation than I did from my flight there and back, from Switzerland to Ukraine and back. That was a higher dose of radiation from cosmic background, because when we go up with the air airplane, we have a less shielding of the atmosphere, so we get some more of, of cosmic radiation, which is also ionizing radiation. And that level that we get on the airplane is not dangerous. And the level I got during my whole stay in was less than that. And, you know, still going in there, our cameraman asked me, like, so how dangerous is it? Like, how big of a risk do I have? And having already studied a lot about these risks, I didn't even know how to start answering him because he was sincerely asking. I went to sincerely give him an answer. But he asked me while he was smoking a cigarette <laughs> next to a five-lane five crossing in the middle of Kiev. Was, the most dangerous part isn't going to Chernobyl. Frankly, this is a lot more... Actually, smoking. Don't smoke. But he, had to, he, he was the second cameraman. We lost the first cameraman because he actually got... He kind of said, oh, actually, I don't want to go anymore. He, he was too worried about it. Worried about yeah. So he was the second guy that we had hired yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. So the fear, yeah. the fear was there. It's such a, especially in Ireland, like I think that's the the clincher. Uh, like for me growing up, because I'm from R D County Loud, hey, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> and like uh, you know, so I went to school in Dock, and like you really, like because my dad got cancer when I was about nine or ten, and he's fine, he's grand. He got he had cancer of the throat, and at that time, uh, loads of people on a road got cancer, and you know to name no names, but I had a teacher who was going to go in that cellar field now. Do you know that cellar field? And I was like, Jesus, that's... So just explain for 
the younger members of the audience that what was Sellafield? So, so uh, was you know Sellafield is a, um, a UK uh, nuclear power plant. I think their biggest. Um, originally, I think it was built to uh, make weapons. Make. It was, yeah. And uh, they had a fire there, I think, in 1957. Back then, it was called Windscale. Yeah. And uh, they had a fire. And um, around that time, uh, there had actually been, I think, you have to kind of look this up, there, there had been uh, many uh, people had said that uh, students in Dundalk had gotten... Um, down syndrome from this accident. And uh, there was actually a kind of a really good group of anti-nuclear activists in Dundalk, Stad Thorpe, uh, at the time when I was kind of growing up. So I was really coming at it from a real, like, like No Way Jose. Like, we were, like, watching When the Wind Blows and, you know, vehemently anti-nuclear, like, you know, cultural films when I was in school. Um, and then Chernobyl was just the, the kind of clincher for me. It was, you know, so looking into reading that article originally and then going, hang on, if it's so good, what about like if another Chernobyl happens? Like, yeah. like when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. And then I'm like, you know, like how many people died? And, you know, I, I, there's like certain anti-nuclear uh, uh, activists like Helen Caldicott in, in Australia who would have said that like over a million people died from Chernobyl. But then you look at the official numbers from the UN or the World Health Organization, and it looks like 140, 140, yeah. you know, and that kind yeah, of... Yeah, exactly, because... And it's like, so what's, like, how is yeah. that, like, and so, like, when you, so I actually went to New York, and I, and I hung out with Helen Caldicott, and I filmed her for an entire day, and I was like, why is that di difference there? Like, what, like, how can you explain it? And she was like, it's a conspiracy. And I said, what? She goes, it's a, well, it's, a, it's the biggest conspiracy of all time. And I, at that moment, for me, was my aha moment, because I was like, okay, let's look into the conspiracy. So what happened? And then so you look into, okay, well, where is the efficient numbers coming from? And it's like, you know, there is the data. These are the papers. These are all the people who are involved. These are the people from all over the world, the most prestigious professors and scientists and, you know, writers and journalists and, you know, all, you know, Thousands of them. And so you really have a, re a lot of work to call it a conspiracy. So that's where kind of, and now in a time where we're kind of post-pandemic and we're post-information and truth, and that for me it kind of comes down to, well, we had a, as a society a real moment where we had to kind of think about who do we believe when it comes to science and who do we believe about this kind of thing. And we, we had those conversations over every single dinner table, I think globally. Yeah. And probably some houses still and, are. And fear plays a big role here as well because actually when you look at this huge number of countries and scientific institutions and scientists who looked at it, they have uh, come to the conclusion that the largest health effect by far uh, of the Chernobyl accident is psychological. Yeah, I can, I, I, I can imagine. Yeah, because yeah. about 200 people died. Uh, there's, but lots of people have, because it is such a fear-inducing issue, and there are lots of people readily uh, amplifying those messages that sticks to people's minds, and they're worried. So even people, scientists in Ukraine, uh, there was one of, who was our host, who had continued smoking because he had been a Chernobyl liquidator. So cleaning up, uh, the, the years after 
uh, flying in a helicopter over the after, right after the accident happened and stuff like this. And he thought that, well, you know, I'll get cancer anyway because I, surely I was exposed to so, so much. So smoking cigarettes is, is a no, no problem. And he, then actually Jim Smith, yeah. uh, in the end, he, he realized that I have to actually look into this. And he published a paper about the risks on, in Chernobyl liquidators. And even there, it's really difficult to see possibly a small uh, increase to the ba baseline cancer risk, but nowhere near to the level of smoking. And that was one of the most badly managed nuclear yeah. accidents ever in the history yes. of, of that's, that. Yeah. That's like, as in to the point where it can't happen again. Obviously, we know that, like, that these reactors aren't, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have, have containment kind of zones and all that kind of thing. But, like, like the Chernobyl one was a real clincher for me. And, like, I suppose anyone here will kind of also kind of, got, like, what about? Yeah. you got 80 roads. It's very hard to unravel the damage, the psychological yes. damage. And, oh, yeah. And, Catherine, you know, in terms of the film itself, which is now part of the discourse, yeah. if you like, because it's so informative. Um, and it's, I think, the only thing out there for a general viewer that would, if you like, expose the viewer to the, the, the whole gamut. Now, you haven't done the, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand at no. all. But sorry, anyway, to ask you, Catherine, what do you think, uh, like, how easy or difficult has it been once the film is made to actually get it shown? Well, it's being released in cinemas in UK and Ireland on February 3rd. So that's great for a documentary. <laughs> well done. So um, we have sales representation that are selling it internationally now. So we're hoping to have more broadcasts. And the big thing would be a, a television broadcast, I presume. Or yeah. television broadcasts. Yeah, well, the big thing would be if like Netflix or Amazon said, here's <laughs> you know, a lot of money, but uh, they haven't yet. Um, but yeah, getting it out as far as and wide as possible is, is the goal. Absolutely. Do you, do you have a hard time with it? This oh, absolutely. Like even trying to get finance for it, we just had closed doors because commissioners and people who are, you know, manage funds would themselves identify as anti-nuclear so they would see this proposition in front of them and say that can't be right i mean what about the children of chernobyl and what about this and what about that and be and and their own biases would kind of so we we really struggled to get it financed and eventually we had some american investors come in and then screen ireland came in after that and they've been fantastic with kind of Amazing. Uh, supporting us creatively as well as everything else um as well as financially so um so yeah, it's been a really, like I really admire what Frankie has done over, like it was started in 2009 and the film changed so much and he learned his craft while he was doing it, made another film while he was doing it, but never gave up on it. And it sort of feels like because there was a real need for it and in, in the, the, the stuff that we were filming and the information we were getting that nobody knew about. And I'd be telling my parents over dinner, did you know that this, you know, the scientists were saying this about Chernobyl and they were just flabbergasted. So to really try and communicate it to the broadest and when you're pitching to financiers you have to say you know who your audience is going to be and you know and originally it was going to be a niche sort of you know engineering sciencey audience but we wanted to hit as broad as a possible spectrum of people so the way we did that was obviously focusing on the people but to keep it kind of um accessible as well you know so um so that kind of ended up i suppose when you're talking about science communication we really learnt uh, our craft that way by trying to pitch it to people who didn't want to know you know yeah. and and then talking to people in the general public who don't want to know either and then then seeing their minds being changed by what we've done is really good um and it's ironic that two filmmakers from ireland a country that is uh, like anti-nuclear to the backbone i mean they're 
there, is, there, are, there are no plans to discuss nuclear it's against the constitution yeah uh, in ireland at all and can't be according to what you told me frankly well okay so in ireland you had um before i was born i'm born 81 so and i'm 41 now don't dwell on that <laughs> so this all happened right before i was born where you guys went off to Consort Point. And like, my thing is, is like, no, 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 because I, I think like, I think it's beautiful because as well as, I think the people, and I've talked to a lot of people who've gone to Consort Point, and a lot of people who went to Consort Point didn't have Woodstock, they didn't have all the failures, and they didn't have all the, you know, the rock and roll. And this was a real rock and roll, like, fest. And people were going down, get your cans, and have a bit of a crack, and, you know, and it was amazing, and, and it was brilliant, and every, you know, but people, like, if you look at the flags, people are, like, protesting the bomb. And they're, pro you know, and, you know, and also it was a completely different time. I mean, climate change has changed everything, including this conversation. But what happened in Ireland was, we all, all that, uh, the plans to build a nuclear power plant were scrapped. Then we built a coal-fired power plant in Money Point, and from that day until today, we have been shooting radioactive fly ash directly into the Irish environment. And no one has ever said that. As in, yeah, you talk, coal ash. You, coal you, ash you, you talk about like radioactivity coming from yeah. a nuclear power plant or, or whatnot, but to just chuck it out like a Chernobyl plant, just every day, due to misinformation, due to unpopularity, partly because... If you're a politician, you've got a lifespan of maybe three, four, five years in tenure. These are projects that take sometimes 10, 15 years to see through. And there's an issue there about how to kind of even tackle climate change with like politicians who see a quick fix. Well, that was at the IFI screening. We had a member of the Green Party there and he kept saying, oh, this is really interesting. I really would need to look at the, the numbers or the, the figures for this before I'd consider it again. And Sarah Cullen, who's from 18 for Zero, said, well, you're not even allowed to put any money into doing these surveys because of, we you know... We can't do a feasibility study. can't even study do feasibility studies. nuclear, making energy from fission was made illegal on the island of Ireland. We can import it in, which is what the Greens want to do. They want to build up that transistor, and we'll import it from the UK and from France. That's okay, as long as it's over there, but not here. And okay, whatever, but... Because of that, it's kind of like a war on drugs, as in you can't do the test to see. So we can't do a feasibility study. So we, we, we're not allowed to see how much money it would cost, if it's unsafe, is it, would it be okay for Ireland? And I think if the information is, I think what's really exciting about living in Ireland today is that we're really, really good at being able to change our minds or kind of be open to a conversation, whether it's abortion or, or um marriage rights or kind of you know stuff that we were very staunchly against in the past once given the information and that information might include what does nuclear have to offer i.e i'm yeah. not a pro i'm, I, I'm not I even pro nuclear i just want to be able to I have the intelligent people like you know suss out if this is yeah. something that's feasible. but you know i think because you said that it's ireland is, is so much against it that it's uh, there it's uh, in the law constitution as well, that you can't even consider it and you know ireland best uh, but at the same time, I've been completely surprised about the, how big the change is from eight years ago when it, this wasn't talked about at all. And even mentioning it, I was shunned from so many... Um, I, I used to do a lot of science communication trying to talk about 
uh, climate change to climate deniers to, and walk them through this. But then these same people who were trying to talk science with me, when I mentioned that, yeah, and actually nuclear could help with this as well, I was completely frozen out from this discussion and banned and blocked because you're not allowed to mention it. And this has changed completely in Europe, in, in, uh, in the English-speaking world. And sure, it's probably a very difficult uh, process if Ireland would change its mind, but on the other hand, that can't happen unless the discussion starts. So it, it might be possible here too. I, I don't think it's actually, uh, it might feel impossible until it starts feeling well, suddenly possible. it's illegal to have the discussion. Yeah. Another power <laughs> Thank you so much to Frankie, Catherine and Ida for speaking with Nulo O'Connor in Dingle. Our new series, The Good Life, is coming soon. So to make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Southwind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kazan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company for the new series of Ireland's Edge.